0: Reflections on Dante's Purgatorio by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, part two. Well, the rulers are now having to come to grips with the theological virtues and notice them, faith, hope, and charity. Faith, hope, and charity, and particularly hope here. And I think what they learned from this drama is that the world that they have neglected their spiritual life in order to save has already been saved, thank you. But only a prayerful life will put them in touch with that reality. Somebody once said, uh, uh, the, the, the fa- pardon the masculinity, is, but the family of man, the brotherhood of man, it's not some pipe dream, it's a fact. It's just whether or not we, ex- we recognize the fact, you see. The world is saved. Well, let's, let me massage it a little bit. The enemy of the theological virtue of hope, there are two enemies in my estimation. One is shallow optimism, and the other is self-reliance. The theological virtue, and in this instance, it's self-reliance. The theological virtue of hope comes into play when one does not rely on oneself, and that's what the Old Testament prophets harped on all the time. Let me give you an example of this, and I want to underscore. I'm going to use Helen Caldicott as an example. I have great reverence for Helen Caldicott. She worked in the vineyards, as they say, for years longer than I could have done it. But I want to make, just to make a comparison. I went uh, a few years ago, talk she gave in Santa Rosa. It was in early ni- eight, uh, 1984, or the year of the presidential election. And uh, Dr. Colcott said, you have seven months in which to save the world. Those were her words. She repeated it several times. You have seven months in which to save the world. And when she said it, I felt the truth of it. But there was something about that that I want to, bring out by comparison with somebody else, by the way uh, the way in which she saw that saving the world did not happen and, uh, and uh, long after I would have thrown the towel in, uh, Dr. Caldicott decided she was going to withdraw from the, from the you know, anti-nuclear weapons uh, campaign she'd been leading so, so vigorously for so many years perhaps that's part of what I'd like to emphasize here Not long after that, I read a story of a a young woman who had been tried and convicted and was serving time for, I forget exactly what, I think it was pouring blood on nuclear warheads, uh, you know, someplace or another. And she was in the slammer for six months, or I think that's what it was, or it may have been longer. And uh, she was being interviewed. And the interviewer said... Uh, And she came from a nice middle-class life, you know, and so on. So the interviewer said, uh, it must have been some tremendous urgency and anxiety uh, that caused you to leave that comfortable life and to uh, do something like this. And she said, uh, I feel no urgency. I'm not anxious. She said, in this interview, she said, You know, the cross was the victory over evil. And the victory has already been accomplished. So I'm not anxious. I don't feel particular urgency. I'm just trying to live in the light of the victory. Now, I offer those two as comparisons. And again, I do not mean to disparage Melinda I have great respect for her. But because all of us have been one time or another in both those places... And it seems to me it's what has to happen here to the, to the, to the negligent rulers who tend, to, who tend to think that it is up to them to save the world to the degree that they might forget the fact that it has already been saved. Notice that the angels that come not only are dressed in green, but they are wielding swords that are broken and blunted. What that may symbolize, I'm not sure, except it seems to leave the hint that the battle has already been fought. On a psychologically, at least, relevant issue, the beginning of Canto V of the Purgatorio, Dante says, I had already left those shades behind and followed in the footsteps of my guide when there beneath me pointing at me one shade shouted, See the second climber climb the Sun comes not to shine on his left side, and when he walks he walks like one alive When I heard these words I turned my eyes and saw the shades Astonished as they stared at me at me and at the broken light The purgatorio is the only place in which Dante has a shadow That tell you something? The Purgatorio is the only place in which he sees his shadow. In hell it's too murky. In paradise it's too radiant. But on the purgatorial mountain he sees his shadow and when he first sees it, it's directly in front of him. And thereafter it moves around. But I think important symbolism about the purgatorial process is the place where the shadow becomes becomes, uh, visible, tangible. But notice what's happening here is these souls gathering around and they're looking at him and he's cast a shadow because he's not a spirit like everybody else there. And he notices them looking at him. You know the song about I I was looking back to see if you were looking back to see if I was looking back to see if you were looking back. And Sebastian Moore says sin is seeing my life through somebody else's eyes. He noticed that they were looking at him. And... uh, he turned to think about that for a minute. And he said, they were looking at me, at me, and at the broken light. Why have you let your mind so, get so entwined, my master said, that you have slowed your walk? Why should you care about what's, what's whispered here? Come follow me, let these people talk. It's, it's nice here that Dante doesn't tell us that he slowed his walk the way it comes in, is it just, all we notice is that he says, I noticed that they were looking at me, uh, at me, and in a minute we hear, what what that caused was, it caused him to slow his pace. And Virgil says, why have you slowed your pace? On the gate of hell, in the inferno, we, we talked about this when we went through it, the gate of hell is inscribed on the stone, Perme Siva. Through me is the way to eternal perdition. Perme Siva. Through me. Through me. Three times. Repeat. Perme. 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 Per me. Through me. Through. Me. And I think it's speaking at the deepest level, not about some, not about the gate, but about a kind of selfhood that will result in hell. And the word on the inscription in hell is duro. Per me, per me, per me, duro. That's hell. Through me, through me, through me, hell, forever. And here is a little hint of that. Dante looks over, and he says, Purme. me." They were looking at me, and he repeats it twice. Purme. me, pur me, and he gets drawn in to a to a little psychosocial uh, uh, backwater. Or at least for a moment, you see. He gets swirled into this other little thing, and he notices they're looking at him. And Dante so brilliantly puts that line, and I think it's beautifully translated here, astonished as they stared at me, at me, and then the nickel drops, and at the broken light. At the broken light. Which at the surface level refers to the shadow, but at the deepest level refers to what? The broken light. It's the intrusion of some kind of little personality cult into this problem. Uh, in Canto Six, there there's several references here to how the. and We might want to pursue this later today, if you'd like. How the uh, prayers of the living help uh, advance the advance the purgatorial process for the, the souls in purgatory. And Dante says to Virgil, "How could that be? Does this mean that the living?" that the prayers of the living change God's mind or something? And Virgil says, uh, lines 43 and following, In a quandary so deep, do not conclude with me, but wait for a word that she, the light between your mind and truth, will speak, lest you misunderstand the she I mean is Beatrice. I'd like to reflect here for a minute. Beatrice now is described as, first of all, Virgil is saying, R- Virgil as reason uh, is saying, you cannot get there from here. Uh, there is a gap. There is a gap between your mind, or the, the Italian word is intelletto, your your intellect, your mind, and vero or truth, or I would think almost mystery. There's a gap. Between your mind and the mystery, or your intellect and the mystery, and first of all, just to acknowledge the fact that there is that gap, I think is the, is the beginning of, of religious life. Religion, the the religious question really is, what are you going to do with the gap? How are you going to deal with the gap? If there's a gap between my mind and the mystery of things, how am I going to re- relate to the gap? Uh, the Zen answer is you enter it. You enter the void, which is, in, which is the gap. Uh, that is also the answer of some Christian uh, mysticism, the, the, the cloud of unknowing. Uh, other Christian spiritualities would say is filled by the glorified Christ, the image of Christ. There's a gap that is filled there. Dante, Dante is, Dante's way was the way of affirmation. That is to say, you stay with that image no matter what. And his image was Beatrice. It is the image of Beatrice that will fill the gap between the mind and truth, or the mind and mystery. I think what this involves, again, for us, you know how I keep coming back to this, what the psychologists call the transference, because I think it's, I think it's a tremendously potent recognition of things. Eric Neumann has a term he calls the secondary personalization of the archetype. Uh, somebody has to hold that image for us and uh, put us in touch with a mystery that we cannot get in touch with, uh, at least in this kind of spirituality, cannot get in touch with without the image of this, without its image in a person. In the monastic tradition, the head of the monastery is called the abbot or the abbess. And that word comes from the Aramaic word that Jesus used for his father, God, Abba. The abbot or the abbess becomes that secondary personalization of the archetype. I'll be Abba for you so you can get across the gap. Somebody needs to do that. One of the things that's dealt with in this portion of the Purgatorio is the whole question of obedience. Obedience not to some, not to some set of rules, but the relaxation of one's self-will so that something larger can begin to stir. See? And in the uh, Christian tradition, there, there have been these curious personalities known as saints. And I'm wondering if we might understand, at least psychologically, what the what the uh, that whole great uh, group of quote saints are as being people who have who have been uh, who have been qualified who are now qualified to serve as. Intermediaries between in that gap between the mind and truth So that first of all I recognize there's a gap and then I recognize that it must be filled by a person And that person and depending on where I am in my life So there's this whole menu you see of possible people to fill that gap and maybe maybe I need Saint Francis, maybe you need Saint Teresa. Part of the personality cults that just come and go, one after another, in our culture, I think has to do has to do with the fact that we somehow intuitively know that there is a gap and it can only be filled by a person, and we just we fill it with one, and next week throw them out and put another one in, and next week it's another one, and next week it's another one. And that's what sells People Magazine. As Dante and the Western tradition have come to see it, we are given to lives that are perversions of the fundamental impulse to love. And the way back from those lives to the world uh, centered in love is Forgiveness. And what I especially want to speak of this morning is the mystery of forgiveness. Forgiveness as a deep mystery of the human experiment. I have been reviewing in the last week or so, uh, for reasons I don't even fathom, Homer and Aeschylus and others, Uh, and I have been sort of longing to get back into that uh, material because beginning at the, these, in these rudimentary texts in the Western tradition, there is this question that lingers over these texts, and the question is forgiveness. The question is how to break out of, of a cycle. And, uh, and it seems to me that Aeschylus and Homer uh, begin to, to, to deal with that even, even uh, uh, in its primordial form. And so I've, in the light of Dante's material for this week, I've been thinking of forgiveness as the greatest discovery in cultural and psychological history. One that we have only begun to discover. Something that separates not only the Hebrew and Christian, quote, Old and New Testaments, but something that might be seen to separate something more generically called the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, the verb to forgive is used 46 times. The subject of the verb in every instance is God. In the New Testament, there begins a delegation of this responsibility. So that forgiveness becomes the central mission of the life of Jesus. The central spiritual mission of the life of Jesus is to cause people to experience something for which the word we have is forgiveness. And the central mission left for the church to perform in history is likewise. And so I would have us think of forgiveness as something much bigger and more mysterious than we tend to think of it. For instance, if each of us right now were to experience a deep and profound forgiveness, we would all fall to the floor sobbing. So to put it in the boldest of terms, deep forgiveness is the most shattering experience of life. In the author of The Cloud of Unknowing, 14th century uh, English mystic, he said by now, to his student monk, he said by now of course you understand cr- uh, contrition and you feel just, justly contrition for what you have done. But there is a deeper contrition which you will stumble upon one day which is the contrition or the remorse not for, for what you are but for the fact that you are the outrage of an apparently autonomous selfhood in a world where God's name is the verb to be. Well, the problem with forgiveness is that, ironically almost, egocentricity anneals us to forgiveness because egocentricity lodges deep in the core of our being, a small and unnoticeable but tenacious self-loathing. And if egocentricity happens to stumble upon this usually unconscious self-disgust, it will cover it up and disguise it and flee from it. Uh, and try and to and enter into various uh, self-justification strategies so that we anneal ourselves to forgiveness and to make matters worse worse we fear and resist forgiveness also because much of our routine lives are lives of self-justification which if we were ever to experience forgiveness would be totally redundant would be useless to experience forgiveness is to realize that a life of self-justification is ridiculous and we have invested a lot of our time and energy have we not in these lives of self-justification so thank you No. to have to go back and premise them on something else I, call, I suggest a reading of, of uh, the, the life of Paul here, uh, who was the great Pharisee, spent his whole life in the attempt at self-justification uh, and experienced something, I think the core of which was forgiveness on the road to Damascus uh, and spent the rest of his life trying to put everything back together again and to see what that meant for himself and for others. Well, all of that is just a meditation... Uh, to get into this to this material now i'm going to skip and we may want to come back to it in the discussion i'm going to skip the little scene where dante goes to sleep and has a dream of an eagle that picks him up and carries him into the flames where he awakens and is told by virgil that while he was asleep lucia or saint lucy comes came to him picked him up and carried him to the gate of purgatory But I'd like to pick up the story with Dante at the Gate of Purgatory. Dante does not experience the kind of deep forgiveness that I've been speaking of at this point. He will experience that when he reaches Beatrice at the top of the mountain. He does, however, hear a warning from the guardian angel at the Gate of Purgatory in which the guardian angel says, take care lest you be harmed by climbing here. And I think the implication of that, or the implication of that that that, uh, comes to me, is that the purgatorial work uh, must be done after an absolution of sins. Otherwise, it's almost impossible to keep it from sliding into a project of self-redemption that is to say a some kind of works righteousness uh, earning one's salvation by performing the right works so that it is necessary in the structural order of things to have absolution take place first to try to pur- to try to climb the purgatorial mountain before one has been absolved of one's sins uh, is very dangerous because then one slips into the secret unconscious pride of earning one's salvation by performing these labors. So Dante comes to the gate and he discovers the guardian angel there and three steps there, and they're described this way in the text. The first step was white marble, so polished and so clear that I was mirrored there as I appear in life. The second step, made of crumbling rock, rough textured, scorched with cracks that ran across its length and width, was darker than deep purple. Notice the crevices are in the shape of a cross. The third, resting above more massively, appeared to me to be of porphyry as flaming red as blood that spurts from veins. And so what I want to do to begin with is to this image. The first is polished marble, so polished that one can see one's own reflection. The second is a dark, deep purple, rough, burnt, crumbling stone, marked with the sign of the cross. And the third is a more massive, large uh, stone, now flecked with red, the red of blood. I would like to suggest a parallel to this process that is that is echoed in the Old Testament prophets. And this is a this is an image on which the on which the major prophets agree. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. And that and so I will I'll quote Ezekiel, but it text comparable to this can be found in the other prophets as well. The Lord Yahweh says this, I will gather you... This is a purgatory image, by the way. I will gather you together from the peoples. I will bring you all back from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. They will come and will purge it of all the horrors and the filthy practices. I will give them a single heart, and I will put a new spirit in them. I will remove the heart of stone from their bodies. And give them a heart of flesh instead, so that they will keep my laws and respect my ob- observances and put them into practice. Then they shall be my people and I will be their God. It's a great image out of the prophets. To remove this heart of stone and to replace it with a heart of flesh. And that's, of course, the result of what we think of as sin. A hardening of heart. And so I would suggest here, in light of that, to see this first step, white, polished marble, as the project of life, which is to take the stone and polish it and polish it and polish it, all white, all lovely and white and presentable, And suddenly discover somewhere in the polishing of that nice, beautiful, white, presentable self suddenly realize that that polishing has made it capable of reflecting who I really am. And I look into that nice little polishing job I've been engaged with for so long and to my horror I see my real self. I want to read a poem that touches on this. Sylvia Plath's poem called Mirror. I am silver and exact. I have no preconceptions. Whatever I see, I swallow immediately, just as it is, unmisted by love or dislike. I am not cruel, only truthful. The eye of a little god, four-cornered. Most of the time I meditate on the opposite wall. It is pink with speckles. I have looked at it so long, I think it is part of my heart, but it flickers. Faces and darkness separate us over and over. Now I am a lake. A woman bends over me, searching my reaches for what she really is. Then she turns to those liars, the candles or the moon. I see her back and reflect it faithfully she rewards me with tears and an agitation of hands I am important to her she comes and goes each morning it is her face that replaces the darkness in me she has drowned a little girl and in me An old woman rises toward her day after day like a terrible fish. Well, it's just the project of polishing the mirror and looking in and suddenly seeing that the mirror polisher is a fraud. And the next step is the crumbled rock. The word contrite means to pulverize, to take the heart the heart of stone and to crack it, to shatter it and to grind it. And so the next step is that pulverized stone, burnt and left with a, with a crude sign of a cross on it. From the stony heart to the contrite heart, and then the third step has this little hint of the return of the blood, little flecks of red, flaming red as blood that spurts from vein. Great symbolic hint here that the heart is returning to, to be a heart of flesh. And and the fact that it is still stone, I I think is appropriate at this point in the purgatorial imagery But the great promise is there that the work has begun That life is returning to the stone Dante says I beat three times upon my breast upon my forehead. He traced seven P's Peccata means sin and the seven P's of course represent the seven deadly sins traced seven pieces with his sword point and said, when you have entered within, take care to wash away these wounds. Now, I want to, well, now just for a moment, uh, as I've so often said, Jung made the point that neurosis is a substitute for legitimate suffering. And uh, it seems to me that we could understand sin as a strategy, the, the life of sin in that, generic sense, is a strategy of avoiding the suffering and its consequence. And so suffering that is refused or transferred or misdirected or avoided uh, becomes sin in that sense. I think we now have extant about 12 definitions of sin so far in our journey through Dante, but that's okay. What this angel at the gate does is that he changes the sin back into a wound it's almost as though he's hinting that we must understand the wound as the source of our sinfulness or our misdirection uh, and accept its suffering suffering not in a melodramatic sense uh, but suffering in the sense that we must bear up under it we must bear up under the weight of this wound I think of that place in the in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is pronouncing the the uh, beatitudes, and he says uh, to all the, to all of us who have lived our lives so as to avoid the suffering. And so, when Jesus comes along with the beatitudes, he says, "Guess what, folks? Blessed are the poor. You don't have to try. You don't have to. If you spend your life trying to avoid that experience, you're going to shut yourself up in a box." Blessed are those who are persecuted. If you spend your life flinching from that out of timidity, your life's going to be smaller. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Uh, Blessed are those who mourn. All this catalog of all these things we spend our life avoiding. And he says, they're blessed. Those are blessed things. You can find God in there too, you know. And if you run from from it, you might run into a, uh, you might begin to live a smaller life. As though some wound in, at the core of our being has caused us a, uh, has caused us to develop a kind of a twitch. The attempt to avoid that wounded place and to cover it over and to seal it up and to compensate for it. Aristotle translates the Greek word hamartia, which is the Greek word in the New Testament for sin. In his discussion of Greek tragedy, he translate well. The word gets translated as the tragic flaw, and and lent that term to the whole discussion of uh, tragic drama. But the tragic flaw, or the hamartia, or the sin, has to do with a wound which is the wound of identity so it is the wound is jacob's limp it is ahab's ivory leg it is odysseus's scar on his thigh notice by the way not to not to give freud too much credit but notice where some of these where some of these wounds are on jacob's uh thigh bone, on Ahab's leg, Odysseus's scar on his thigh, and Oedipus' swollen foot, which he received by being abandoned as a child, and so on and so forth. Sin is the covering up of these wounds, compensating for these wounds, avoiding a recognition of these wounds, and so that our whole identity becomes finally one that is shaped by our, our, our attempt to flee from the consequence of those wounds. And the first step that the angel at the gate, gate performs is that he converts the sin back into the wound. It's now a wound. I want you to feel it as a wound. Feel the sin not as a, as a moral transgression, but get back in touch with its, with its source in woundedness. And then I want the one I'd like for us to spend a little time on this guardian at the gate has two keys the one was made of gold the other of silver first with the white then with the yellow key he plied the gate so as to satisfy me whenever one of these keys fails not turning appropriately in the lock he said to us this gate of entry does not open one is more precious but the other needs much art and skill before it will unlock. That is the key that must undo the knot. So the gold one is more precious, but the silver one must be turned first, and it requires more skill, for it is the one that unties the knot. Well, again, there are lots of... uh, interpretations of this uh, clear allegory really Uh, but I want to suggest one to us and and I want to come back to this um, to what is premised on in a minute it's premised on Dante's uh, what's what some have referred to as his way of affirmation that is to say the way of the affirmation of the imagery and I want to come back to that in a minute but one of the things about the way of the affirmation of the imagery is that uh, an interpretation, Dante had an interpretation of this text, obviously, and, and starting with Boccaccio, everybody else has had interpretations of this, of this passage. Uh, but I think the job of constantly interpreting a, a canonical text, and for me this is a canonical text, the job of constantly interpreting a text is to ask oneself the question, can I affirm this image in the light of everything I know and feel? and if so how and then we're on to, then we're into the business of our own interpretive work is is it true for me that there are two keys and if so how and for, for purposes of just sort of jogging our imaginative faculties i want to present a uh, a reflection on that and see see how you how you feel about it the gold key and the silver key are necessary to turn this lock and open the purgatorial process. This, by the way, this is the gate of heaven. This is the gate of heaven. This is, these are the keys of Peter. This is the pearly gate. There is no gate to heaven. Once you get in purgatory, it's just a matter of, of retraining your sensibilities for living in, the, in a world premised on love rather than and, and, and disabusing yourself of those sensibilities designed for a world premised on something else. So it's simply a, a, a retraining of our sensibilities. So this is the gate of heaven. And these two keys, according to Dante, are necessary. Well, I w- want to suggest the following. The gold key is the key of authority. This, I think, is true for Dante. Dante. And for Dante, the question of authority is quite simple, uh, at least on the surface level. Via apostolic succession or, or whatever other thing, uh, the church, the institutional church, had the authority from the Gospel of Matthew to Peter to the higher archs than the priests had the authority to forgive sins. And so, the gold key is there. There's no equivocation about it. There is the authority to forgive sins. But how do we understand that? Maybe we still understand it in those terms. But if not, is there a way in which we can understand it? Authority in the sense that a person or an instrumentality with sufficient esteem in my eyes so that when he, she, or it forgives me, I feel forgiven. See That kind of authority. So that the act of forgiveness coming from that source impacts me. I feel it as forgiveness. seems to me that would be the appropriate understanding, or at least the, the understanding that I arrive at when I ask myself the question, can I affirm this image in light of everything I know and feel? The silver key is the one that I think is more problematical, and Dante says it's more problematical. It's, it's, it has to be used first, and it takes more skill. And I would suggest an interpretation of that as pastoral counseling, what I'll call pastoral counseling. Because Dante says that this it takes art and skill in order to un tie the knot and I think of that knot as being if not identical with certainly involved with that 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 little core of self-disgust that I suggested is the compensatory uh, reality to the to, to egocentricity some little self-loathing at the at the core of our being and and Dante says it's this silver key that with great skill Uh, an art will untie that knot. And it seems to me that that is, I'm I'm using the word pastoral counseling, but of course that would cover in our day all the psychotherapeutic uh, uh, things that correspond to it. And this I think is very problematic because the person who has developed that skill has a little knot of self-loathing inside him and a counterpart to that self-loathing is a little strategy for self-justification which would be advanced by one more counseling success you see it's very complicated, you know. So, who, who can perform that delicate work of reaching through that fibrous mass of defenses into that little core of self-loathing and untie that knot? See? Seems to me that's the silver key. It takes great skill. And the and Dante's, the marvel of Dante's imagery is that, is that uh, hundreds of years before the psychological age, by the way, the psychological age is not the end-all and be-all, but hundreds of years before the psychological age, he could offer up a, a, a symbol for that, which is that that is the one that takes the skill. But we must not do without, we must always understand we have to have that golden key too. The fact that I have that skill does not automatically give me the spiritual authority to convey a sense of forgiveness. They don't, there's still two keys, I think. We would like, the, the psychologist would like to think all you need is the silver one, and the institutional church would like to think all you need is the gold one. This is where it becomes very interesting. Dante's own theology and in a sense the, the structure of his poem requires that the silver key be turned right now before he get into paradise but I'll tell you a secret Dante is the first modern person and the truth of the matter is that it was Beatrice who turned the silver key in my estimation now Dante's theology his ecclesiology and the structure of his poem Required that it be turned before he get into paradise, into uh, purgatory. And so it was. But I, I, I suggest that we hold judgment until we see what happens at the top of purgatory. I think it's turned there. I think only Beatrice could finally turn that silver key for him and untie that knot. But he knew that you can't get in purgatory until all this is taken care of. Otherwise, it becomes works righteousness, see. So he had to have it done but I think he is the first modern in the sense that the silver key had passed into the hands of a woman. As he approaches the gate, he says, Hearing the gate resound, I turned attentive. The gate is resounding because it's not opened very often. And it has gotten rusty and creaky so that when it opens, it groans on its hinges. Now, the groaning of this gate on its hinges I feel sure is here in order to put us in touch with an emotional truth the groaning of the gate on its hinges and so he's hearing the groaning of the gate on its hinges and he says in addition to that he says I seem to hear inside the words that mingled with gentle music Te Deum Laudamus we praise thee O Lord And what I heard gave me the very same impression one is used to getting when one hears a song accompanied by an organ. And now the words are clear and now are lost. And I'd like to suggest that as an image for the emotional confusion at the moment of that entering into the purgatorial process. One has just experienced the shock of self-recognition true self-recognition the contrite heart of having that little white marble thing all suddenly get warped and pulverized and ground up and cracked and the beginning of new life in the in the red almost corpuscular little red flecks in the porphyry stone and that the emotional confusion is the the creaking and groaning of the gate opening a sense of the pain and struggle of that, the remorse in a way, he's been told, do not look back, do not look back, do not look back. And this is very definitely, part of the pain of this is the sacrificing of the old life. As soon as he gets in, the door closes. He hears it close. Boom, no going back. No going back. Once this experience has happened, there's no going back. So the creaking and groaning of the gate and then music and singing, the choral singing, is the great hymn of praise and thanksgiving. And the music that goes with it is is part of that emotional confusion so that the words can be heard and then not heard. And I think it is the coming and going of that intelligibility of the experience. One moment I can... One moment it makes sense to me. And then it's just a, then, it's just a, then I'm just awash in these apparently contradictory emotions of remorse and joy. See? And I think, I think that this is in keeping with that transition. We may not always experience it so fully as to be conscious of, uh, of tears being actually tears of remorse and joy at the same time and so on. But it seems to me that what's pictured here is exactly that emotional confusion. And the reason I want to underscore it is because, again, what, tr- what the tradition does for us is that it tells us how things are supposed to be so that when we get there, we won't think we're the first person ever to get there. Well, I want to... Uh, <clears throat> Conclude today's reflections by offering a beginning by offering a little definition of pride not that uh, we don't have plenty already going around But I thought it my duty to conjure up something so uh, here's my offering and you can make up one of your own Uh, Pride is spiritual, moral, intellectual, social or material superiorities or supposed superiorities By which I isolate myself from others and delude myself about how helpless and needful I really am we are in we have entered here with Dante the first ledge in the seven-story mountain is pride and uh, Dante is admits he he is guilty of pride and uh, as soon as we get on this ledge he notices that on the mountain side of the ledge the white marble wall of the mountain is carved with these absolutely stunning pictures out of the tradition, uh, so masterfully carved that they appeal not only to the eye, but to the ear and to the smell and to the other senses. That is to say, what he discovers just inside purgatory is at that moment the tradition comes alive in the way that we say, now I can hear it, or now I see what it means the tradition comes alive for him in a way that he has not experienced before inside the purgatorial mountain I think that's an important symbolism that it is there that we awaken to what it really means after we have encountered our needfulness and uh, experienced something of the beginning of the forgiveness I'd like to read a poem if I could about that by uh, the British poet W.S. Graham he has a poem entitled Listen, put on mourning. It goes like this. Listen, put on mourning. Waken into falling light. A man's imagining suddenly may inherit the hand clapping centuries of his one minute on earth. And hear the virgin juries talk with his own breath to the corner boys of, of his street. And hear the black Maria searching the town at night, and hear the play ropes caw the Sister Mary in, and hear Willie and Davy among Bracken of Narnain sing in the mist heavy with Myrtle and listeners, and hear the higher town weep a petition of tears at the poorhouse close upon the public heartbeat and here the children dig and run with my own feet into the netting drag of a suiciding principle. Listen. Put on light break. Walk into miracle. The audience lies awake under the tenements, under the sugar docks, under the printed moments. The centuries turn their locks and open under the hill their inherited books and doors, all gathered to distill like happy berry pickers one voice to talk to us. Yes, listen, it carries away the second and the years till the hearts in a jacket of snow and the heads in a helmet white and the song sleeps to be wakened by the morning ear bright. Listen, put on morning, waken into falling light. Well, it's that sudden coming awake to things, which is to go back. A man's imagining suddenly may inherit the hand clapping centuries of his one minute on earth. In each of these things on the various ledges, he will encounter uh, stories out of out of the tradition, which tell him both about the sin and about its counter, the virtue which is the counterpart to it. The virtue that's the counterpart of pride, of course, is humility. And the, fir- and the first of these is, a- is almost always depicted as the virgin. And the great story of humility is the Annunciation, where he hears the angel, he hear- actually hears the angel in the sculpture say, Ave, that's Gabriel, and he also hears Mary in this sculpture say, Ece ancilla Dei, behold the handmaid of the Lord, the ultimate act of humility. And so it comes alive for him. And then he gets an Old Testament image of David dancing before the, the Ark of the Covenant returned to the Holy City. And then an image out of, uh, out of a combination of pagan history and, uh, and folklore, the, the Emperor Trajan. Uh, so each of these images is a story of humility and the value of humility. And then an interesting thing, after he sees the first image, he would stay with the first image, the image of the Annunciation. And Virgil says to him, your mind must not attend to just one part. And I think this is a very important insinuation here. That, again, to go back to this idea of the, of the way of affirmation of images. The, the via positiva as opposed to the via negativa. The via negativa is Krishnamurti's way. No images. No images. They're too dangerous. We fall into idolatry too quickly. No images, please. Dante's way is the via, the via positiva, the way of the affirmation of images, but it's full of pitfalls. And he realizes that it's full of pitfalls. And so Virgil says, your mind must attend, must not attend to just one part. Meaning, if you're going to go by the way of images, you must consult a great number of images on the same subject. Because the tendency to a, to a reductionism is so much a part of this approach that it's easy to grab onto one, to latch hold of one image and to reduce it down to some formula or prescription. And he says, no, you must consult them all. The the uh, uh, professor of English at Boston University, Christopher Ricks, has says this in one of his writings, one triumph of the imagination is that it can be aware of the perils of the imagination. The aggrandizements, covert indulgences, And specious claims which it may incite great art is often about the limits of what we should hope for even from the greatest of art and among the many things which the imagination can realize on our behalf one such is the limits of the sympathetic imagination and to me that corresponds here with what what Dante is doing with Virgil careful if you're going by the way of of images you must understand consult many don't hunker down around one or two. You need to have that whole range of things. There's a self-correction if they're all spread out there. And so he goes from image to image and and sees these three, one out of New Testament, one out of Old Testament, one out of pagan literature. All have to do with the same message of humility. Very briefly, I want to mention his visits with the prideful. They're walking around with great stones weighing them down. They're bent double with these huge stones on their back and they're walking around uh, undergoing their purgation. They're, Dante has been walking around with them and, of course, Dante bent over a little double too and the reason he did that is because he's he's admitting his own pride and he admits it several times. And then in Canto 12, he uh, he says, I drew my body up again erect, the stance most suitable to man and yet the thoughts I thought we're still submissive bent that's what's important see what's important is not the is not the bodily stature but the but the mind and heart and he has gotten the essence of it but then he's but then Virgil says to him look downward for the way will offer you some solace if you pay attention to the pavement at your feet And he sees then on the pavement at his feet another set of uh, images, another set of carvings, 13 little depictions of the sin of pride. Later on in the same canto, he says, O sons of Eve, persist in arrogance, in haughty stance. Do not let your eyes bend, lest you be forced to see your evil path. And again, that's pride that holds its head up like this and refuses to look down at the path that it's on. But notice that it's the same path he's on. It is an evil path as long as one doesn't look at it. And if one looks at it, it becomes a purgatorial path. There is a saying that uh, I think was in my memory was attributed to Muhammad. I'll share it with you. It is that Muhammad said, You are on the right path. If you understand that the path you're on leads to perdition. Perhaps the way of understanding that is that you're on the right path if you understand that that path has led to hell. However marvelous that path is, it has led to hell. And it can lead to heaven, but it has led to hell. And so you must attend to it. And Dante says, if you do not look down at it, it will be an evil path. But if you look down at it as he is told to by Virgil, then it becomes a purgatorial path. And he says, I saw head bent treading those effigies as well as those who'd seen those scenes directly. And I think there's a causal relationship to the phrase head bent. That is to say, once I'm in touch with my own need then the tradition speaks to me so i'd like to begin by quoting a few passages from canto 13 and then reflecting on on them for a few minutes the first one is in the third terse at beginning line seven dante says when he enters this second ledge of of the uh, where the sins are being purged he says in the mandelbaum translation no effigy is there and no outline the bank is visible the naked path only the livid color of raw rock the Dorsey Dorothy Sayers translates the the salient uh, line here no figures to be seen no image none in stark contrast to the to the first ledge of purgatory where Dante encountered these incredibly alive images which were so alive that they began to speak to his other senses other than sight to his smell to his touch to his to his hearing So that a great contrast here. In this realm, suddenly no images. Further down that uh, first page of Canto 13, line 25 and following We heard spirits as they flew towards us, though they could not be seen, spirits pronouncing courteous invitations to Love's table. Love's table, a variant on the biblical idea of the messianic banquet. Uh, um, is the call to the kingdom the call to community genuine community and these are spirits that have ignored the call to love's table, to the real communion so that there's a sense here of an alienation in the rejection of that community but again what's Pointed out just above that is that we, Dante says, we heard the spirits, but we could not see them. The vi- the the vision is restricted, no images. In um, now the question now is how do these center how are these sinners purged of their sins? And this is very instructive. Line fifty nine of Canto thirteen, Dante says, another shoulder another's shoulder served each shade for prop. So they're purged of their sin by returning, beginning to return to this love's table or to this community or this communion. That is to say, they begin to rely on one another. They begin to lean on one another, overcoming the isolated, alienated condition that befalls those who refuse the invitation to love's table. So the first thing is to lean on one another and to recognize our needs for one another. And the central purgation image is in line 70 and following. Iron wire pierces and sews up the lids of all those shades as untamed hawks are handled, lest too restless they fly off. This is one of those beautiful... Crystal clear images in Dante it's the, it's the image out of the falconing uh, sport, which is to a new caught, a falcon or hawk, is fidgety, and so they sew up the eyelids for a while so that, the, so that the hawk is not looking around and can settle down. And the great image here of the envious is that they have to have their eyelids sewn up. So that they will settle down and not fidget every time something comes into their sight jump off and flit around beautiful image Again, it has to do with the closing down of the visual This is a place where there are no images Voices, but we could not see them and now their eyes are sown, no seeing. Envy comes the Latin for envy is invadire comes from invadire the root of that is to see it's a malady that has to do with a way of seeing a way of seeing that can be overcome only by closing down at least temporarily the visual and so what I like to to do is explore that process a little bit the other ingredient in the purgation is that while this eyes are sewn so that they cannot see out they they're they're not sewn so tightly so that the tears cannot get out because tears do get out between the eyelids and roll down the cheeks and i think tears is a very important aspect of this purging of 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 the envious habits and i want to read to you something from a seventh century uh monk whose name was isaac the syrian he's quoted in maggie ross's book on on uh tears the uh, spirituality of tears and he says this the stream of tears occurs when the mind has begun to become serene remember the hawks that are trying to settle down the the stream of tears occurs when the mind has begun to become serene from this place of peace the intellect will begin to see hidden things then the holy spirit will begin to reveal before it heavenly things. So the shutting down of the eyes is not the closing down of the visual in a in the deeper sense, but it is shutting off of that superficial, superficial visual so that the deeper sense of vision can come through. First of all, to see hidden things, and then finally to see heavenly things. Uh, what I want to s- say to you is I'm not... That this is all metaphorical. It is not. I'm not putting. I'm not putting the onus on the visual in any fundamental sense. But simply saying there is a way of seeing, which is fundamentally envious, even at a level below, beneath, or, or deeper than the moral level. It's fundamentally an envious way of being uh, and of seeing. And that the and that the corrective to that is to shut down, to shut the eyes to close out the images and the vision so that the correction begins to take place in that more, in that more serene place. And the correction takes place uh, in direct proportion to the flow of tears and has to do with the leaning on one, on one another's shoulders and the overcoming of our isolated, individualized existence and the coming to, finally to the love's table.